Well, let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8, page 278, uh, the reading that uh, Linda read for us just a moment ago in our service, 1 Samuel 8. And you'll remember that we've been looking through the book of 1 Samuel. We had a little break last week for Remembrance Sunday, uh, but uh, we've landed at chapter 8 this week, and then uh, next week we'll look at chapter 12 and end the series. Page 278. Uh, It is a a very desperate thing to see how many people reject Jesus because of the church. Have you noticed that? Uh, One man put it like this. He was speaking of his work colleagues. He was actually working abroad uh, years ago. And he put it like this. He said, they used to visit the brothel and then they'd go on to the mass. I didn't go to the brothel with them. And so I didn't go to, to care to go to church with them either. See, people loathe hypocrisy. And it's especially hypocrisy among the people of God. And when they see it in church leadership, that really takes the biscuit. So news stories of the habitual abuse of young boys by priests sickens people and drives them away from religion, quite understandably. Bad leadership turns people away from the Lord. Now in and of itself, that is bad enough, but... And I think this is the newest thought for me as I've been looking at 1 Samuel chapter 8 over these last 10 days or so. Not only does bad leadership drive people away from the Lord, but when people reject the Lord, they always turn to idolatry, to something else. When I've been in conversation with Jehovah's Witnesses on the door, um, we haven't had any come to us since we've been um, here in Fulwood, but um, we used to occasionally have them in, in, uh, in London. I've uh, certainly spoken to them down through the years. Um, I've met a a number of Jehovah's Witnesses who are disaffected Anglicans. One Jehovah's Witness I spoke to was just fed up with the duplicity in church leadership. And that's what turned him to become a Jehovah's Witness. And turned him, this is the important point, to a religion that is far from the truth. To a religion that is actually idolatrous. See, when clergy are immoral and people leave the church they will make something else their God. Whether that something else is another religion or no religion at all, they will still have a God, something that drives them, that is the most important thing in their lives. Now that is what uh, we see going on in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now look with me at uh, verses 1 and 2. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of the firstborn was Joel and the second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. Now the first time I read those verses while I was preparing for this, bells rang. Alarm bells began to ring. I wonder if they do for you, if you've been here over these last weeks looking through 1 Samuel. See, here is a leader who has two sons and he puts the two sons in positions of leadership. Nothing in and of itself wrong with that, but in 1 Samuel, does it ring bells? It sounds like Eli and his two sons, who we met back in chapter 2. Eli, who allowed Hophni and Phinehas to serve in the temple of the Lord. But remember, they were wicked and corrupt. And they were responsible, at least in part, for the calamity that came upon the people of Israel in chapter 4, when the Philistines came upon them, because they were accepting these two boys in leadership. And so as we read the beginning of chapter 8, we should have this sense of deja vu. I'll read on and our worst fears are confirmed. Verse 1, Samuel's boys were appointed as judges, but verse 3, 
They chased after dishonest gain, accepted bribes and perverted justice. And look, no one likes a bent judge. And so, verse 4, because of Samuel's boys, the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel and they called for change, verse 5. They said to him, you're old and, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Well, you can't blame them, can you? Samuel's boys were bad boys, bent judges. No wonder they wanted them out. And in that, they were right. They'd learnt the lesson of chapter 4 when they'd allowed Eli's sons to go unchallenged in leadership. Calamity came upon them. They weren't going to make the same mistake again. That was the right thing to do. They were right to demand that Samuel's boys be removed from office. But what they asked for was wrong. Do you see it there at the end of verse 5? They wanted a king because they wanted to be like all the other nations around them. That was wrong. You see, bad leadership does that. When we see bad leaders in the church, we think badly of the office. So when we, think, when we see poor leadership from some bishops, we can begin to despise all bishops. I know that's my temptation. But the answer to bad bishops is not to get rid of all bishops necessarily, but to appoint good ones, isn't it? That's why we ought to be praying for the next bishop of Sheffield, that he'd be a good one. When we encounter incompetent vicars, the answer is not to despise vicars, he says as a vicar, but to appoint good ones, isn't it? So yes, the people of God here were rightly wanting change. But what is so shocking is not just that Israel wanted a change of leadership, but but this bad leadership led Israel into idolatry. See, it is idolatry that is at the very heart of this episode. It's not seen immediately uh, from verse 5, but idolatry is what lies behind the Israelites' request for a king. And we see it very clearly in verses 6 to 8. And I think verses 6 to 8 are the, the, the central verses, the controlling verses, if you like, that help us to understand the whole chapter. Now let me read verse 6. They said, give us a king to lead us. This displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they've rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they're doing to you today. Now do you see it there, verse 7? The Lord says they are rejecting me as their king. Verse 8, they're rejecting me as, uh, as they have done since the day I brought them out of Egypt, forsaking me, and this is the key phrase, serving other gods. Rejecting me as king, serving other gods. Idolatry is at the heart of this chapter and at the heart of this Israelite request for a king. And once we've seen it here in these central verses 6 to 8, we see it in the verses that I think form really a sort of bracket around the whole chapter, verses 5 and verse 20. See verse 5, let's look at it again and you'll see it there. They said, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. That's the problem. Why do they want a king? They want to be like all the other nations around them. And we see exactly the same in verse 20 at the end of the chapter. I'll read from verse 19. Halfway through, they said, we want a king over us, verse 19. Then we shall be like all the other nations. 
But you see, that's the problem, wanting to be like the nations around them. We don't want the, the Lord as our king, we want another king because we want to be like the world. There's a problem for us. We want to be popular, we want to be liked, we want to be accepted, we want to be just like the world. That is idolatry when it dominates and drives our decision and when it discards the Lord. You see, if I want to be like the world, if I want to be popular, if I want to be accepted, when the crunch comes and I have a choice between obeying God or being popular and accepted by those around me, if I opt for acceptance and popularity, then I've been idolatrous. Because at that point, being accepted by the world is my God more important to me than the Lord. You see? That's what's going on here in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And desperately, it is not difficult to see how the church today is similarly idolatrous. I didn't have to think for long to see the application for us. We want to be like the world on so many issues. Perhaps most clearly at the moment, on, uh, in the wider church, on the issues of human sexuality and gender specifics. On those issues, the church at large prefers to be accepted by the world rather than obeying the word of God. Verse 5 and verse 20, we want to be like the nations around us. Now again, what is so striking about 1 Samuel 8 is that this kind of idolatry is so subtle and so easy to slip into. See, if we compare chapter 8 with chapter 7, we'll see uh, what I mean by that. Look back to chapter 7 with me and and verse 4. See, again, we encounter idolatry in chapter 7, but it's not the same. I mean, it is and it isn't. Verse 4 is a wonderful verse. The Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. You see, here are God's people repenting of idolatry, determined to no longer serve other gods, ridding themselves of all the objects associated with Baal and and Ashtoreth, the gods of the pagan nations around them. This was a great moment for Israel. And most Christians I know would do exactly the same thing. Get rid of the idols of other gods. In my first curacy, I remember a girl in her early 20s being converted out of witchcraft. And I remember this great night when uh, I and a few of her new found friends in the church were invited to her house where she had a ritual burning of her magic books and all the other associated things with her dark past. It was a great night, great fun, burning all these things. She wanted nothing to do with them. It's very similar to chapter 7, verse 4, isn't it? Similarly, I think of a guy converted from Buddhism, got rid of his statue of the Buddha. He didn't want to have anything to do with other gods once he found Jesus Christ and knew him as the one true God. That's what's going on in chapter 7, verse 4. A turning away from other gods, a putting away anything to do with the gods of the nations. Christians should do that. Christians do do that. But as we turn on to chapter 8, we see God's people slipping into a far more subtle idolatry. But it's idolatry nonetheless. Idolatry that has no shrines or statues or sham gods, but still idolatry. And it's this kind of idolatry in chapter 8 That so entangles us, Christians, today. See, as we've seen already, God's people wanted a king, which in and of itself was not wrong. 
The problem was they wanted a king like all the other nations. And let me just show you why uh, I think that's the case. Just to keep your finger or your service sheet in 1 Samuel 8 and, and come back with me to, to Deuteronomy chapter 17, if you will. It's page 196. And we'll see here in Deuteronomy 17, page 196, we'll see here how the Lord doesn't say you simply cannot have a king. He tells us, or them, if they want a king, what sort of king they should have. So the Lord's word, the word of the Lord, doesn't prohibit having a king entirely. What sort of king should they have? Well, look at Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 14. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He doesn't say don't appoint a king. He says make sure you appoint this kind of king. Again, verse 15, he must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who's not a brother Israelite. How else must the king be? Verse 16, the king moreover must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them for the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Uh, Do you see the point? When you appoint a king, if you really do want a king, when you appoint a king, appoint one who is not like the kings of the nations around you. Not one who's going to go over lots of horses and and a great military arsenal. Now the point is this, this is why it's so subtle. Wanting a king need not be a bad thing in and of itself. It seems here it was permitted by the law of God. It wouldn't be the best thing, but it was permitted by the law of God. What was wrong was wanting a king to replace the Lord. And wanting a king so that you could just be like everyone else around you, like the nations around you. And so, as Tim Keller so brilliantly says, idolatry can be taking a good thing and making it into an ultimate thing. See, they could have had a king who always lived under the king, the Lord God Almighty. Wanting a king need not have been a bad thing, but they wanted to make their earthly king into the ultimate thing. They wanted a king to replace the Lord. And I think you see that most clearly back in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 20. You see 1 Samuel chapter 8 verse 20. Then we shall be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. There's no need to look back to it, but in chapter 7, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, Israel, who didn't have a king then, had leaned on the Lord and the Philistines were defeated. The Lord had fought their battles. And now they want a king to fight their battles. They want a king to replace the Lord. They want to be like the nations around them. And here's why the idolatry of chapter 8 is so subtle and so easy to fall into. Because a king in and of itself was not wrong. It was the kind of king they wanted An idol, says Tim Keller, is often a good thing that we have made into an ultimate thing. That's what's so seductive, so powerful and so persuasive about this kind of idolatry in chapter 8. 
You see, you and I can make an idol out of family or work or relationships or sex or, well, or anything. Because an idol can be a good thing that God has made turned into the ultimate thing in our lives. As soon as it becomes the thing that we live for, the thing that we believe will save us, the thing that we look to when times are tough, the things that we expect to get us out of a hole, well, then it's become an idol. Deuteronomy chapter 17 was very clear. They should not appoint a king like the kings of the world. Yet that is exactly what they wanted to do here. And so they were rejecting God's word. Now do you see how we do it today? We also long to be like the world around us. As I've already suggested on issues of sexuality or gender roles or science or whatever. We want to be like the world. We want them to accept us. And in wanting to be like the world, we do two things. Firstly, we reject what the Lord has said in his word. What he said about marriage being the only appropriate place for sex. What he said about marriage being between heterosexual couples. What he said about the specific roles that men and women should play, that men and women are equal but different. We reject what he said about the sanctity of life and so on. We reject the word of God and then rather than believing that the Lord fights our battles, we fight like the world. That's why they wanted, you see, they wanted somebody to fight the battles for them. So we fight like the world. How should we fight as Christians? Very simply, on our knees and with our Bible in our hands, praying and proclaiming, interceding and instructing. That's how Christians fight. Proclaiming the truth and praying that the Lord himself would protect his people and honour his name. How do we know if we're becoming idolatrous? Well, how do Christians fight when we want to be like the world? We're rude in debate, aggressive in manner, devious in approach, selfish in desire and silent in prayer. And the point is this, if we want to be like the world, we'll become like the world. If we want the world to accept us, we will not be distinctive in anything and that will include in the way we fight our battles. We'll become just like them. Now, for us here uh, for a moment, can you see how subtle this idolatry is? Wanting to be acceptable, wanting to be popular, wanting to be like the nations around us, like the people around us. At an individual level, it's why many of us won't speak out for Jesus as often as we should. So in conversation with a friend, I keep quiet because at that moment I'm more concerned about what this other person will think of me than what Jesus thinks of me. At that point, my reputation is my idol, isn't it? More important than Jesus. My desire for friends, for popularity, for acceptance determines how I live then, doesn't it? And when I value the acceptance of others, wanting to be like the world around me, above the friendship of God, well then I go on and break more commands of God. So I'll lie, because I know that if I tell the truth at that moment, I'll lose the acceptance of other people. And so, do you see, I can actually become a slave to popularity. I can't do the right thing. Wanting acceptance becomes the thing that I serve. But the Lord makes it very clear here, idols are terrible masters. Any idol will enslave us. Now let me read verses 9 to 17 and listen to the refrain here. It is, he will take. He will take. Verse 9, listen to them, says the Lord, but warn them solemnly 
and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses and they'll run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plough his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your men servants and maidservants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks. The king they wanted, the king that replaces God, that king warns the Lord will take from you. If we make anything or anyone else our king, that thing or that person will bleed us dry. See, idols are takers. God is the giver. That's why at the heart of the universe is giving. That's why the very fabric of the world we live in is about giving. We are made to be givers because God has made a world which reflects who he is. Or just think of Christmas. I'm having to think of Christmas every day because almost every day at the moment my children are asking me, how many days to Christmas, Daddy? I love Christmas and I love Christmas presents. As a little boy, I used to think that the best thing about Christmas presents was getting them. And I used to get so excited at the really big presents under the tree having my name on them on the label. I still do get excited about that, actually, the truth be known. But now, much as I still enjoy receiving presents, and I really do, there is something far more exciting about Christmas presents than getting them. And it's giving them. Don't you know that truth? When you go and find just the right present and you hand it over and you see somebody open it and they look at you with their smiling face, just what I always wanted. It's even better when they mean it. (laughs) I have far more pleasure in giving than receiving. Don't get me wrong, I enjoy receiving, but far more pleasure in giving now. Why? Because that is how God has made the universe. Because God is a giver. And it's not just at Christmas that we know the truth of this. You think of the whole of life and you, I can guarantee you that you enjoy life more when you give rather than when you take. I've had a good day at work when I've given myself to my work. But when I've frittered my time away, fiddling about on the internet, being lazy, wasting my day, it is the most frustrating day of work. The most satisfying days are the days when I've worked hard when I've given myself in serving others, when I climb into bed knowing that that I've put my heart and soul into whatever I've been doing, whether it's paid employment or something else. I enjoy life when I give. Think about the times that you've given up a day off to help someone else. Isn't that satisfying? It's great being a giver. That is how God has set the universe up, because God is a giver. The giver of life, the giver of food, the giver of friendship, the giver of breath, the giver of sunshine, the giver of fun, the giver of rain, the giver of everything that is good. God is a giver. But you see, in our fallenness, we don't want God. And we don't want to give. We want to take. 
And ironically, as we push God to one side and chase after other gods, other gods that we think will give us so much, we find ourselves being fleeced by those gods. The very things we thought would give us more end up taking from us and bleeding us dry. See, materialism is the most obvious example. We think it will benefit us. We think it will give us so much, which is why we're so seduced by it. We think it will make us happy. In fact, it robs us. So when we live our lives for the God of materialism, thinking that things are everything, the God of materialism robs us of the most important thing, relationships. It's obvious how it works out. People work so hard for things that they don't see their family. Do you see? Not so far from the warning in this passage, is it? In verse 11, he will take your sons, verse 13. He will take your daughters. That's what other gods do to us. I see it when I've taken funerals, sadly. Desperately, on more than one occasion, I've been warned before conducting funerals that the family is at each other's throats over the inheritance. Materialism, you see. What does materialism do? Rips families apart. He will take your sons and your daughters. Materialism is a useless God. It promises so much, but it robs us. It takes from us the things that matter, as do all other gods. Let me try one other thing. You can work on it at home over lunch if you like. You think of all the gods that are in our lives. Consider the the idol of education and career. Now remember, Tim Keller, helpful, his helpful definition on idolatry, it is often taking a good thing and turning it into an ultimate thing. Education's a good thing. Career can be a good thing. But when it becomes the ultimate thing, it robs us. It's easy to see why we make a god out of education and career. We think if we're well educated and have a great career, we can have everything we want. The world's our oyster. But look, I've met Christians who have elevated education and career so much that they've instilled in their children the importance of having a great career almost above everything else and their children have got a great career. But now they never see their children because they're so busy. Sounds like verse 11. He will take your sons. And verse 13, he will take your daughters. And now they've got a fantastic job. Which sounds an awful lot like... uh, Verse 12, some he will assign to be commanders of thousands. Oh yeah, he's right at the top of the tree. But we don't see him anymore. Idols rob us. How many people in the pursuit of something have lost everything? That's verse 14, isn't it? He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them his attendance. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give them to his officials and attendants. Your men servants and maid servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks. Idols fleece us. And then this passage tells us, as if that isn't bad enough, they enslave us. Verse 17. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. The living God will set us free. Idols will enslave us. We think it's the other way round. We think the Lord enslaves us and that other things give us freedom. That's why we hanker after these other things. 
And that is exactly how the Israelites of old thought. As he looked back to verse 7, the Lord told Samuel, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they've rejected. They've rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day. See, from the day they were rescued, they were always wanting to go back to Egypt. From the very moment that they were brought out of slavery, they wanted to go back there. And each time they're rejecting the king, the Lord, the living God. Christians, we're the same. We can poo-poo them and tut-tut them. We're exactly the same. From the moment we're brought out of slavery to sin, we've wanted to go back, if we're honest. Look at the sinful longings of your heart. At times you and I long to be back in Egypt, living as an unbeliever. We think, oh, I'd be so free if I was doing that. Longing for the freedom to do whatever you like. Whether it's a small thing like having a lion on a Sunday morning. I long for a lion on a Sunday morning. A cup of coffee in a coffee shop reading the Sunday newspaper. It sounds so wonderful. Well, it can be a small thing like that or a more sinister thing like wanting to be free to have sex with another woman. Or just the very basic thing of wanting to please yourself, not wanting to, have, to serve other people and put them first. Sunday morning lying, sex, ser- serving self. They're all things Christians want sometimes. It's wanting to return to Egypt, to the life before we were saved. Because we believe the lie that the Lord enslaves us And we are duped into thinking that other gods give us freedom. It's not true. Idols enslave us. They own us. They direct us. They become the final arbiter in making all our decisions. They rob us of everything that really matters. We are driven by them. Well, that's true of us individually. It's true of the church too. How does the church enslave itself by the world? Well, again, I'll ask you to think about that over Sunday lunch. It would be a good discussion starter, wouldn't it? How does the church get enslaved by other things? Here's one. In a desire for popularity and success, wanting to be like the world, the church will not preach the gospel faithfully out of fear that people will turn away. Isn't that right? The irony is, when the church wants to be like the world, the world doesn't want to come to church because what's the point of joining the church if the church is no different from the world? People will only come here when we're saying something different from everything else around. We must be distinctive or we will die in the pursuit of the idol of popularity. If popularity is our king, we will die. Not surprising that so much of the church is dying, is it? As it tries to merge in with the world. And you see, if we, pers- if we insist on pursuing another idol, it may be that even if we come to our senses, the Lord may not bring us back to life. That's the warning of verse 18. See, when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king who you've chosen and the Lord will not answer you in that day. I think this is talking about the whole people of God. It's not talking about individual salvation. It's talking about the whole people of God. That if a whole church has pursued something else for so long and they eventually cry out, the Lord may say, I'm not going to save you. Because as the people of God, you need to see where it's going to lead you. 
If the church insists on ignoring God's word and so wants to be like the world, there may come a time when the church cries out for deliverance and deliverance doesn't come. It is a solemn warning. And I think it is a solemn warning for the church in this nation. A church which for so long has, has pursued other things other than the word of the Lord and the Lord himself, maybe we're crying out now and he'll say, you need to see where that leads you. See, what is so desperate about this chapter is that despite the Lord's warning, we read verse 19, the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we shall be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. And so the Lord gave them what they wanted, verse 21. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them. And give them their king. As we come to a close, we must not rush over these verses. The Lord warned. The Lord's word was very clear. But they refused to listen. They refused to listen and the Lord gave them what they asked for. See, often I've heard people say, well, I've prayed about whatever it is. And I've got it, so it must be right. They prayed, and they prayed for a king, and they got it, but it was not right. Let's not put stuff into super spiritual language. I prayed about it. When his word is very clear, doesn't matter how much you've prayed about it, if his word is clear, it is wrong if you do it. You may even say I had a peace, sense of peace about it, doesn't matter. See, when the Lord has spoken clearly in his word and we refuse to listen, sometimes he will give us what we ask for, even though it will do us no good. And that might be his judgment upon us. It might be because it's the only way we'll learn. We do the same with our children, don't we? With children we tell them what we think is best. They think they know best. Seven-year-olds think they know best. And what it's like when they're teenagers, but seven-year-olds do. And sometimes the only way they'll learn is if we let them make mistakes. Sometimes very painful mistakes. And only then do they see how foolish they've been. The Father treats us like that. If we won't listen to his word, verse 22 is a devastating moment, listen to them and give them a king. It's a terrible way to end the chapter. But of course the story doesn't end at chapter 8. Or chapter 9 when they're given their king. And the story doesn't end in chapter 9, it's King Saul. And the story doesn't end when they are given the great King David. And the story doesn't end at the end of the book of Samuel. What is remarkable when we look at the big story is that in the Lord's kindness and grace he used this wicked idolatry and Israel's rejection of himself to bring about the salvation of the world. Oh yes, God did give them a king. Their king was a disaster. So God gave them another king, King David. And from his line came another king, great King David's greater son, the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this king was kind and loving and caring and generous. A king who was the exact representation of God. A king who didn't take, but one who gave. 
a king who gave his life. He too was rejected by wicked men who put him to death by nailing him to a cross. This king gave himself in obedience to death on a cross. A death that meant that we could be forgiven for rejecting his word, that we could be forgiven for all our idolatry and wanting other kings. A death which means that we can be forgiven for rejecting the king himself. And so as we think about all uh, the things that this passage has raised for us, as we think about the idolatry that has grabbed our own hearts, as we think about the idolatry that has grabbed us as Christchurch forward, as we think about the idolatry that has grabbed us as a church across this nation, the message is there's a God of grace and of forgiveness. And as we repent and turn back to him, the king says, come back, you're forgiven because of my death. Let's pray.